Matt. That's actually very encouraging to watch. Thank you guys for serving in that way. That's pretty incredible. I want to read our passage for us. It's in Mark 9, starting with verse 30. Verse 30, they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone will be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. This past Saturday, just yesterday, um, I attended a funeral for a cousin of ours um, who had suffered for a long time, kind of in silence a bit. It was a shock. We knew she was sick, but she hid from us how sick she actually was. Uh, she's a believer, but she was just one of those, I don't like burdening people. Um, and so it, it, that can be frustrating a little bit when you love someone, but um, She's no longer suffering anymore. Amen. And we're grateful for that. Uh, but when you go to a funeral, um, there's always this kind of uh, spiritual sobriety that takes place, no matter uh, what your views are, no matter what you believe. Um, there's something that's very beautiful about a traditional black American wedding is that it is cloaked in Christian um, ethic, Christian belief. Christian understanding. Doesn't mean everybody there is a Christian, um, but it's a good chance you grew up in church. And, I, and I, I think and reflect on that now in gratitude because even in my living recklessly as a, at a young age, when I hit rock bottom, my rock bottom was praying saints that I fell on uh, because of the surroundings around me of believers and how they trained me in the knowledge of the Lord. And so you have Christians there, you got cousins. Uh, who grew up around Christians, and they may be fluent in Christianese as a result of it, but uh, they're not Christian. Uh, and then you have those who are just like, man, you know, I'm out of here. Uh, I, I'm, I'm done with the whole Christian thing. Uh, things make more sense for me. There, there's more to explore in the world that I want. But when you come back to the funeral, everybody is there, and there is this clash when you're at the funeral of a believer you have this collision with the kingdom of God, no matter what you've established your kingdom on or what, the, what those beliefs are. How do you deal with a, a, a room of singing, worshiping individuals who stand before a dead loved one? How do you deal with that? Especially when that's also your loved one, you just don't belong in that same kingdom. And you're wrestling with how to deal with that. There's this collision. But not just for the non-believer, I think for the Christian on this side of glory, we have these 
certain scenarios of colliding with God's kingdom, where our kingdom, or uh, what once used to be our kingdom, uh, wants to try to erect one of those old walls up again. Because when God places light inside of the dark, dead heart of a non-believer, what he is doing is he is tearing down all of the walls of your kingdom and simultaneously erecting his own. And his kingdom is being erected in your heart. But then as we go through life, we have moments where we're like, man, you know, I, I miss like that accent wall that used to be back here. You know, it's, I don't feel like forgiving this person. And then we have this collision. Or if you're suffering in any way, and you, his kingdom is a kingdom, we're going to talk about this a little bit more, a kingdom of suffering in a way. And it's like, look, I don't want to do this in any way. As a matter of fact, I want to be guarded from it completely. We have this collision with his kingdom. See, once he has destroyed all those uh, citadels in our hearts that we erected for our own kingdom, our views of the world are changed. Our views of ourselves has changed. Our views of God have changed. Who God is. Why he is. But then also our views of life and death are changed. And that's why the funeral is always this sobering seeking of the kingdom. The right thinking of God's kingdom matters. As we're going to see in this passage, there's a lot of wrong thinking that happens in this. Because it's the proper view of God's kingdom that informs the way we think about his kingdom and then subsequently respond within his kingdom as obedient citizens. And Jesus in this passage endures a lot of wrong thinking. But what he does as a loving king is he patiently and he lovingly reminds his disciples that I'm a different kind of king. My kingdom is different. It starts in the very first verse. Or the very first section. These Israelites, these first century Jews, they know their Bible. Some may have more prestige than others, but they know their scriptures. They know the basic tenets. That there is going to be a Messiah, it was never a question. They, they expected it. They know it. They know the Messiah is coming. They know that there is a Messiah. That's not the issue. The issue for the first century Jew and why they ended up being opponents of Jesus and even crucifying him is because of the lens through which they viewed this Messiah and his coming. Their thinking of the kingdom wasn't correct. And I'm going to highlight this for a quick second. Jesus, oh, let me go back. Let me read that. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he's killed, after three days he will rise. Okay. And there are some things to point out here. Son of man language. I think Pastor Matt has addressed in a, in a couple of sermons before. That's the favorite title Jesus gives for himself. That is the highest form of what we call Christology. The study of who Christ is. And I think when you think of, uh, I guess, competing religions with Christianity, but... They call themselves Christians like a Jehovah's Witness or Mormon. They all call themselves Christians, but their Christology is very low. See, Jesus isn't God. But our Christology is very high. 
and that he is God and the son of man is what captures that understanding of who Christ is. How do we know? Daniel 7 is why Jesus uses this language and also why when he used that language, the high priest and uh, the Jewish rulers looked at him and like, okay, let's kill him. In Daniel 7, you have what Daniel calls the ancient of days in this uh, apocalyptic vision. The ancient of days, we can probably guess, that's God. But then there's one like a son of man being presented to this ancient of days. And there's this kind of Old Testament hyperlink that's used in that passage where the son of man is riding on the clouds. In Israel, the way that they would compete with the neighboring religions is by declaring there's only one God who rides on the clouds. That's Yahweh. See, the Canaanites used to believe that Baal is the cloud rider, but Israel all throughout the Psalms would mention not only Yahweh rides on the clouds, but that's the Son of Man. Not only is he riding on the clouds, the presentation involves the Son of Man being given a kingdom and dominion that will never end. That's Yahwistic language. So very early on, a part of Jewish theology was the fact that Yahweh dwelled in multiple powers. Trinitarian doctrine, it doesn't start in the New Testament. He just disagreed that Jesus was one of these powers. So why is it important to understand that it starts with that high Christology? Because their, their understanding, I'm sorry, their understanding of the Son of Man is that, okay, that's Yahweh, that's God. But then he jacks them up a bit. He says that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, huh? Kind of like a play on words that the Son of Man will be delivered into men's hands. And this delivered unto, and especially in that way in the Greek, is very, uh, there's a picture attached to it of martyrs being handed over for slaughter when it's used. It's very popular use in the first century. But it's this is unfathomable that the boundless one would be bound by the very ones he created. That God himself would be subject to his subjects. Goes even further, and they'll kill him. And the disciples are like, okay, I don't know. I mean, did I skip this class? I don't. How could this even be? And see, because of their lens of the Messiah, they could even stretch it to make that make sense. It's like, okay, well, look, we understand the Messiah. The Messiah, his whole purpose is to come here and liberate us. Look, I mean, we're Israel. We're God's chosen people. Time after time after time, nations have oppressed us and ruled over us. And God has delivered us. And now we have Rome's boot on our neck. And that's the Messiah's purpose, to get us out of here. So maybe, you know, in a valiant effort, he'll die during all of this. And then Jesus says, he'll rise again. And you're like, all right, well, you know, I'm not really, I don't feel like thinking about this. I don't get it. Now you're just confused. I think what leads to the confusion is the framework of God's kingdom. And we see this throughout the scriptures, that the Jewish framework, and a framework we share today, uh, is that they're concerned with what happens to them, by whom? rather than what happens through them, for whom. Jews felt like they were exalted among the nations because they're God's chosen people. Because look at what's happening to us, man. Look, look at, look at it. 
rather than what's happening through them for the glory of God. That God would use his elect Jewish people to save the nations. It's missed. It's lost on them. And so just in this beginning of 30 and 32, Jesus inserts a different framework, a proper framework. That the kingdom of God is established in humility, suffering, death, and glory. That's the establishment of the kingdom. And that's not merely included in the framework. This is the framework of the kingdom of God. And we're going to see in here why it's important to see that rightly. That everything that we know about the kings of this earth and this kingdom needs to be thrown away and recognize that God's kingdom is different and his king is a different kind of king. So what exactly is this issue with the first century Jews here in their framework of God's kingdom. Why is that the framework? Well, it's because their understanding of God's kingdom is self-centered. Here's a difference between something that's selfish and self-centered. See, selfish is more isolated, only me. Um, it's lonely. You think about everything in the world, it's just you. Your things, your time, your energy. But something that's self-centered is a little bit more deceptive because you can include a lot of stuff in a self-centered life. You can even include God in a self-centered life. You just need to make sure that him and his kingdom orbit you and revolve around you. All the people in your life revolve around you. That you are the center of everything that matters. That was the first century Jewish ethic for God's kingdom. That's why this understanding of the Messiah who's going to come, and the only reason he's coming is for them, and he's supposed to fight valiantly and destroy Rome for them. And Jesus is talking about, yeah, he's going to be handed over and killed. This is not making any sense. Jesus says in Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God. Think about that. What does it mean for first out of everything else to seek his kingdom? Not just merely agree that it exists. Not just desire to be within it, but to seek it first. The flourishing of God's kingdom ought to reign in our hearts before our desire for anything else. Anything else. Comfort, health, security, acceptance, wealth. One way that we get deterred from that when we want to seek God's kingdom, which is living for God, which is doing good, which is being a light in this world, the only temptation to deter us from that is believing that you are the most significant person in the world. What, Brandon? I'll explain. See, when you're the most significant person in the world and you have an op opportunity to do good, well, what if something happens to you? I don't want to do good if something happens to me. What if someone slanders you? Well, I, I don't want to be slandered, so I don't, I don't want to do good. What if you lose some comfort? What if you lose a friend in doing good? Well, I don't want to lose a friend, and so I probably shouldn't do good. What if forgiveness hurts too much to absorb pain? I don't want to be hurt. 
so I don't want to do good. See, that's the temptation. To believe that the kingdom of God has us at the center. We can receive threats of losing safety, security, comfort, esteem in any way. And now this thing that we do for the flourishing of God's kingdom, we need to reconsider. Because now we're juxtaposing light in his kingdom with us. And that's worth discussing a bit in a self-centered kingdom. And there are moments when we know that's not our ethic. That's the only reason strangers are out building a house. That's the only reason that strangers are being invited into homes and made family. That money pours in. That people endure suffering and share in 3Ds and prayers are happening. But there are moments when that kingdom collides with our own. And we need to be reminded that we ought to think well of God's kingdom. Because the danger of having a self-centered kingdom is that when you're the most significant person in the world, losing anything from the smallest to the largest is a devastating reality. And so your life is rooted in keeping and protecting, preserving you. And that's just not a kingdom life. It's not a kingdom life. We go on to 32. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. I think it's pretty hilarious. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked him, hey, what were you arguing about? What are you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Now, if this isn't the section that resonates with us the most. In a self-centered kingdom, the only necessary thing in life is greatness. If you're, if you're at the center of your kingdom, you need people to acknowledge that. That's what, great, that's what greatness is. It's not good enough for us to be great at something. We need people to acknowledge it, man. Did you, did you see when I was the bigger person that one time? You know, I didn't say it. Hey, look, I didn't say anything back. Did you see that? Now, here's something that <laughs> the disciples are scared to ask Jesus uh, what he's even talking about. He, he jacks up their whole framework of God's kingdom, and they don't even want to, they don't want to dive into it. This reminds me of growing up. My father used to intentionally use big words when we were very young. And we learned at an early age that when he uses a big word, he's trying to sucker us into asking him what it means, and then he's going to force us to go and find his old dusty dictionary, so we got to look it up and then write about it. What? So then he would just say the dumbest things on purpose, and we knew what he was doing, but we really wanted to know what that word meant, man. <laughs> Unnecessary. It's like if every we all, we all grew up playing baseball, you know, the whole crowd is mad. He'd be like, man, anger seemed to be ubiquitous amongst the audience there. What ubiquitous? What the, yeah, never mind. And then he would see us perk up. He was like, hey, go get the dictionary. It's the disciples right now. Why are they scared to ask Jesus, what are you talking about, Rabbi? It's because Jesus has said this before, and it didn't go well. As a matter of fact, it should warp our view of the kingdom based on how Jesus responds here, because the ethic that Peter had in Mark 8 
seems to be something we can resonate with. Jesus says before, hey, I'm going to be handed over to men and I'm going to die. And Peter's like, what? My friend? My rabbi? Whom I love, who has taught me and graciously loves me? No! I would never let that happen. And Jesus calls him Satan. Satan. Right thinking of God's kingdom matter. Sentiments, though. Can you imagine the weight of such a statement? Jesus, I'll never let you die. Jesus knows what his death means. Peter's concerned about his friend. The translation is, there is kingdom thinking and then there's self-centered thinking. And sometimes even self-centered thinking seems like the best of intentions. But right thinking matters. And the disciples witnessed that. They're like, look, man, Jesus said a bunch of confusing things. I'm going to go ahead and trust him on this one. I'm not, I don't really want to talk about it. But then when they're by themselves, they're still only concerned with themselves. And they're arguing. They'll, 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 they'll grant it to Jesus. Look, Jesus, you are king and we, we get it. You're going to have your own kingdom. But, but within your kingdom, O king, which one of us is greater? Which one of us is better? Wow, I just got a picture. <laughs> Can you imagine the video playing while Matt was rolling and them in the background arguing about who's better? While they're serving and building the house? Who's greater among them? It sounds silly when you read it. Arguments about positions being better than others. Man, we hear that today. All the feuding. And here's the reality for them and the disciples. It's not unwarranted for sinful human beings to do this, especially them. What just happened before our passage is Jesus took some of the disciples up on the mountain for the transfiguration. Man, what an event. And he only took 33% of them. What does that mean? It means he didn't take some. What does that mean? It means that an entire group of disciples had some people who were able to do something and some who weren't. What does that mean? That as flesh and blood humans, they probably were together like, hey, man, look, I get how you feel. You know, I went up on the mountain. You didn't. I mean, I get it. I get it. Or they probably had some who saw the others go up on the mountain and say, I don't know why you got to go up on the mountain when I've done this with Jesus. I've studied this with Jesus. Remember that one time I answered the question? He said, good job. I don't know why you got to go up there. And that argument still exists today. Arguing about, hey, who is better? The one speaking up here or the one in their closet by themselves praying and interceding on behalf of siblings? Who's better, the professor who's training Christians or the mother who's raising up her sons and daughters in the knowledge of the faith? Who's better, the evangelist preaching the gospel out on the street or the co-worker in the cubicle who knows to mourn 
and feel and empathize and share the gospel with coworkers inside of their office? Who's greater? G.K. Chesterton, he once said, in context is not only just an argument of greatness, but I think that we see the culmination of that argument between man and woman. Who's better? Who's greater? And he said, if I take the land and place it beside the sea, if I take the town and place it beside the country, if I take the sun and place it beside the moon, if I take man and place him beside woman, I suppose some fool would argue about one being better than the other. Jesus responds to their desire for greatness with a tangible illustration. He uses a child. Before he uses the child, he tells them that, hey, the greatest is going to have to be the least. You want to be the greatest of all, you've got to be the servant of all. The Greek word for child is interchangeable with servant, and a, and a child is a nobody in this culture. As a matter of fact, a child is an actual body, and they get older and they take up space and cost money, so you better work. That's what they were good for. Jesus says that if you are one who receives one of these, then you're a kingdom citizen. And practically, you should live as one of these. That's a kingdom citizen. You want to be great? The greatness of the kingdom is the most lowly. How does Jesus use this ethic to teach? Because that's who he is. Scholars have pointed out that there's a lingering distinction between Jesus and all of the other, you know, men or gods of renown in culture all throughout history. And when it comes to why we hold them in high esteem, and the lingering distinction for Jesus is his pathetic weakness. There is no God that's written about for the purpose of esteeming highly and worshiping who weeps profusely in a garden while sweating blood. Who takes his followers who are meant to serve him and washes the feces and dirt off their feet. Who is mocked and spat on and stripped naked just to hang up on a cross, pleading out to his God and asking him to forgive the people doing it, and then dies. From the outside looking in, it's pretty pathetic. Because our understanding of a kingdom is strength, and our understanding of strength is lording over and self-centered. But Jesus provides the ethic. This is the second time Jesus gives the framework to his disciples. He tells Peter in Mark 8, look, my death is absolutely needed, and it is the entryway. He tells us in Mark 9, in our passage today, that the position that's truly held in high esteem is the lowly. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit. He tells in Mark 10, James and John, they come to Jesus and say, look, Jesus, look, here's the thing. We just want to be the ones who sit at your right and your left in glory. And Jesus is like, man, your question is cloaked in ignorance. You have no idea what glory is in my kingdom. Better yet, you don't know what precedes it. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism I was baptized with? And they're eager in their ignorance saying, yeah, we are. And Jesus says, okay, then that's what you'll receive. And if you know how James and John died, it makes sense. Humility, suffering, death, glory. And Peter confesses who Jesus is at that one point. He gets it. He understands who Jesus is. But Jesus is pointing out that, hey, even if you accept me as king, you need to understand I'm a different kind of king. And for those of us who call him king, who dwell in his kingdom, that makes us suffering citizens in a myriad of ways. Our king came to serve and give his life. The scripture says there is no student above the teacher. And then it says in, in Luke, everyone, when they are fully trained, will become like their teacher. We're going to grow to suffer well. Magnitudes will be different. Frequencies will be different. But our view of suffering will be the mark of our citizenship. Have you felt as if your kingdom is colliding with the Lord's? If there is at any point obedience to the Lord has made you angry and made you turn away in any way, you may be dealing with a kingdom that has you at the center of it. Wrestling is good. Even a humble anger where it's like, Lord, I don't want to do this, but look, would you grow me and strengthen me to do it? That's different from saying, I don't like what this says, so I want it adjusted. That's a kingdom with you at the center of it. God's kingdom can collide with us when we're just getting comfortable, man. Life is actually straightening out for me. We just got secure at that job. Man, we're just getting started to bond with that friend. This relationship is going deeper. And then they decided to bring up faith. Just when I thought that I could be a part of this group of people and all agree, I don't want to be the one that stands out because of my Christian faith. I'm the most significant person in the world, and the most important thing for the most significant person in the world is to have good relationships this way. I really don't want to speak on my convictions about sex, because I'll be called a bigot. I really don't want to stand firm on my principles at work, because I could probably lose my job. I don't want to rock the boat with this friend. They're going to think that I don't love them. And what I really want them to know is that I love them. 
And so maybe if I could get them to understand that first, then I'll share the gospel. And 15 years later, it's never happened. I don't want them to think I'm shoving religion down their throat. Look, God, I, I don't want to be the bigger person in this moment. I don't want to respond with grace and patience. This person has hurt me time and time again. I want to rest in my anger and hatred of them. I don't want to absorb that pain. It hurts too much. And if I do absorb that pain, I just need a small applause for doing it. Can you just let some people know that I did it? Can I be vindicated just a little bit? I can't take the possibility of being humiliated time and time again like you, my king. Psalm 38, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. There are people who know this to be true. You want to know who those people are? those who have been brokenhearted and crushed in spirit. And here's the beauty of it. They probably also went through my entire list too. But God's grace is stronger. And even in their brokenheartedness and their crushed in spirit, they recognize his faithfulness as a sympathizing high priest king who comes alongside us and says, I know exactly how you feel. Humility, suffering, death, glory. We are humble amongst others because we've received from Christ what we don't deserve. We're willing to suffer because we've been perfected in our weakness through his strength. And he gives us strength to suffer in any way. Death. Death happened to me when the old died and passed away and I was made new in Christ. When this body dies, that's another birth for me. Glory, the physical death we all meet. This is the beginning of eternity with the Lord. Glorified bodies, a unified desire to glorify the Lord. This is the paradigm that breeds gratitude in those who are grateful serve the king for his glory. Thinking rightly about the kingdom matters. I'll end with this as we prepare for communion. The king who was the pathetic weakling did so on purpose and for a reason. His body was broken for our healing. His blood was shed for our forgiveness and our cleansing. As you fight through the collisions that's going to happen time and time again, where you see your old kingdom colliding with the Lord's kingdom, those who are in Christ have grace, and his blood has cleansed you in such a way. I did a wedding one time for a couple that I pastored, and this is unashamedly my, my favorite wedding, besides my own. This is recorded. The one, the groom was a Mennonite. 
and the wife grew up non-believer. They're both believers now. In Mennonite tradition, what happens before the wedding is the groom stands before the guests. And the groom says, what you're about to see is my future bride walking down the aisle, stunning, beautiful dress. Some of you will look in awe and amazement of just how beautiful she is. Some of you, because you're human, will look and you'll think about your own life and think about, man, I want that. Or, man, did I look as good? And all these comparisons with you, us, you, us. But what you're about to look has nothing to do with any of that. And what's about to happen is she's going to come down and represent the body of Christ being presented unblemished, perfect to the groom. In awe. And as you look upon her, the world will look at us being presented to the groom in perfection. And we have an opportunity for the world to look in wonder also today. You're going to fail at it. His blood has cleansed you. You're going to suffer for it. Healing has been provided. Let's be reminded of those things as we take communion together.